0: You're listening to Sportsnet Today on the official
1: home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.
0: Sportsnet Today is on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair, Sportsnet 650, Josh Elliott Wolf riding along with us as well. And man, it has been a long time coming, Canucks fans. What a game to clinched the first series win for Vancouver since 2011. And heading into this show, Alex, we were saying, look, the Canucks play a Friday night game against the defending Stanley Cup champions. We've got a show coming up on Saturday afternoon for two hours. We're either going to be previewing the first game seven since 2011 or wrapping up the first series win since 2011. Well, the way the Canucks came out in the first 10 minutes of that game started to give us an indication that it might be the latter, that it might be a series recap, and the rest of the way, they left no doubt. Again, I'm Israel Fair, a uh, staff editor at The Athletic, also a regular here on Sportsnet 650. Alex Blair is with me, a, a longtime media member in Vancouver and Toronto, uh, Probably most prominently known for his work as a features producer at Hockey Night in Canada. If you watched the Building Brock feature documentary, uh, that was uh, Alex and a lot of the work that that he did went into that. And uh, running the board with us and our producer is Josh Elliott-Wolf, who you also hear quite regularly here on Sportsnet 650. So last night, Alex, I mean, they go. the Blues decide to go with Jordan Binnington. He looks shaky from the first minute, and I think Canucks fans had the idea: okay, this game might be going our way. And then when Jay Beagle opens the scoring on a broken play, uh, Delarose steps on the on, a, on the puck and, and slips, but Beagle Beagle takes advantage, and all of a sudden, I think there was this is strange to say confidence permeating through throughout the Lower Mainland that the Canucks might be able to pull this one out.
2: Well, with a with a young team, we wondered what we were going to see. It was their first chance to close out a playoff series. People in Vancouver will well know that that's that's a tough challenge. Going back to even the twenty eleven run, and the way the game started last night, especially with what the bottom six gave the Canucks, you couldn't have asked for a better start. Um, at At four nothing, though, they did get another power play, and I know the Canucks. It they almost didn't know how to play. They're up four nothing early. The Blues look out of it. And you just had that weird feeling, especially with the Calgary-Dallas game the night before. There was still a lot of hockey to be right. played. Yeah, for sure. And it looked like the way Dallas, um, the way St. Louis pushed back, kind of allowed the Canucks to say, "Okay, we're going to keep our foot on the throat here." And they just kind of kept going. And you know, they take care of business, which is just another thing that this team has shown that they are playing well above their experience. And to not allow the opportunity of a game six to slide through their fingers last night, to get that done when you have a Vegas Golden Knights team that's been sitting there for almost a week now. And also when you look at the ice time last night, they were able to balance all four lines. You didn't have Quinn Hughes playing upwards of 28 minutes. I think Quinn played 18 minutes last night. He played as much as Jordy Ben. So that sets up the team really well. And it was a, it was a huge win. I mean, it was the biggest win since since 2011.
0: We've also got a couple of guests lined up to join us coming up in the next 5-10 minutes. We'll talk to Dan Murphy, a guy who has been around the Canucks for a long time and has been around this team and can speak to what this means for this group. And we hear this group often talk about how close they are, and it is such a sports cliche. But in this case, it really does seem that everything has lined up. For this group with the young players and the veterans coming together and as you said alex the bottom six stepping up and it doesn't erase the last four or five years of contract talk and whether or not this is the way to build this team but in the moment that cannot be ignored and also later on after one o'clock we'll catch up with former canucks gm and current sportsnet personality brian burke to get his perspective on what this means for this Canucks team and not just what does it mean for getting to the second round, some tangible value out of the experience of going head to head with the defending cup champs and winning that matchup and now heading into a matchup with a Vegas team that many people will tell you is the best team in the NHL. What can the Canucks get out of this? Where is the long-term value We'll talk to Brian about that. But before we get to Murph, I want to sit in a little bit on this moment because it has been a long time. And this city has been through three playoffs since 2011 where the team did not get out of the first round. Sometimes in shocking fashion, like in 2012 against the Los Angeles Kings. In 2013, losing to the Sharks, that really felt like the end of an era. In 2015 against Calgary, there was some hope, but on the other side, Calgary was a similar team with some young players and some players that stepped up in that series to sort of establish themselves, and it's been a a long time, and we saw the celebrations in Surrey at Scott Road. Uh, Canucks fans have been waiting for this. I live out in North Van uh, in the lower Lonsdale area, and there were some pretty vocal celebrations as well. For the fan base, before we we talk about what this means to the players, what does this really mean in terms of the investment that people have made in this team and some of those dark years where even when the Sedins were still here, the team was not winning very much?
2: When you look at it, it has been very tough for the Vancouver fan base. And when a city like Vancouver with, I know the BC Lions are here, I know the Whitecaps are here, but this is in some ways a one sport, major sport town. The amount of attention and pressure that is put on the Canucks, it is a very difficult situation when the team is not winning, uh, for all involved. That's the fans, that's management, that's the players. But if you flip it on the other side, this is the first chance, I think, that the Canucks have actually taken it down to the wood and actually rebuilt this through the draft. And that's how you build, you know, it, it. we'll see what happens with this team going forward, but that's how you build a successful franchise and a franchise that will be perennially good. Um, if you look back at cup, the previous cup champs, the Pittsburgh Penguins, Chicago Blackhawks, they had to go down right to the bottom, and it was through high-end draft picks that they were able to build the cores of their teams. The Vancouver Canucks have never really done that whether that was through the patience of ownership management the pressures of the fan base to not go through five years of rebuilding and circumstantially we have ended up at this place where the Canucks have drafted in the top 10 for the better part of six years and that's where they get Quinn Hughes that's where they get Elias Pedersen have they missed on a few of those we're still waiting to see Jake Vertanen is still a project uh, Ole Levy. We're still not sure what the Canucks are getting there, but you know, Brock Besser, uh, Vasily Podkolzin's coming. This is this is an exciting time for the Canucks, and they are they are headed in the right direction. And the fact they're doing this well this quickly is uh, is a surprise.
0: And their fans are living in this moment right now, and certainly recognize that not even just from the hockey perspective, the life perspective. Uh, the last six months, uh, the, the regular season being postponed and shut down and having a playoff opportunity I think really resonates with the fan base. All right you know him from the Canucks broadcast you also hear him on Sportsnet 650 quite regularly. It's Dan Murphy and he joins us on air Sportsnet 650. What's up boys congrats on the show. Hey thanks a lot Murph really appreciate it. How are you?
3: I'm doing good but like like anything there's always good news bad news. You know good news is the Canucks closed it out one in six games moving on to round two the bad news is that forces me back to edmonton
2: Uh. (laughs) you were in edmonton for a bit of the minnesota series right yeah i was there for the whole uh playing round,
3: and then uh, came back for this round and i head back tomorrow morning so i believe i'm hosting tomorrow night's game and then i'll be um reporting for the duration after that so all good you know it's uh People ask how weird it is, and I say it's no weirder than the last five months uh, just of life. So it's, uh, hockey's been fun, and uh, you know I can chat with the likes of Farhan and Thomas and uh, G and Prince of Bay, So there's people there to talk hockey with, and even if there's no fans in the building. It's it's good enough.
2: One of the reasons we wanted to have you on Murph is through your job with Sportsnet and the regional broadcast. You are probably as close to this team as anyone and i know through the first round and now in or through the play in round and now through the first round it seems like this team has surprised a lot of people and i wanted to ask you how surprised you were seeing this team play over the last 2 to 3 weeks in perspective yeah. going back to the beginning of you know how this team started the season and then the pause and everything that entailed
3: yeah i mean I, two things i mean i was like most people heading into the season Um I didn't think the Canucks were a playoff team. I thought that they were an improved team, but were likely going to finish, you know, maybe three, four, five points short. Uh, And then we all know what happened. They had like a nine-point cushion. It went down to one point. The pause, uh, they were reeling a little bit. So, you know, I'm not sure uh, had the pause not happened, if they would have made the playoffs. uh, We can debate it, and who knows. Uh, But then going into the play-in round, you know, I thought Minnesota was going to be talented for them just because of the five-on-five play in the way to Vancouver uh it really hadn't excelled that much at that during the regular season uh so when they dropped the first game I you know I was like most people saying oh no here they go uh they pulled that one out and then you know I'm not much of a sports gambler but I probably have bet a thousand bucks halfway through game five the Blues are going to win that series
4: I mean they had won
3: two games in a row they were absolutely dominating um, I know most people are saying that uh, Markstrom turned the tide. I don't think so. I mean, I, I, he, he allowed them to stay in it. I think the Miller goal turned the tide and gave them belief. Yep. So I, I'm surprised. I, I, I really am. I didn't think, uh, you know, after they won the first two games, you knew they had a chance. But when they dropped the next two and they were down 3-1 in game five, seemingly with no life, I didn't, I wouldn't have given them a chance. And to see them rally, score some goals, uh, and then win in the fashion they did in game number six. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I am I am surprised the way it's played out so far.
2: Resiliency has been something that, whether it was giving up the 3-1 lead uh, in game two to St. Louis and then finding a way to win in overtime, or as you mentioned in, in game five, I mean, they look lifeless through the second period and then to, to be able to turn it. What's the, what's the area that you've noticed the biggest change with this group uh, or growth as we sort of restarted here after the pause?
3: Well, I will say it I think it is the five-on-five five play. Now, I, I think we expected them to get beat up by the Blues in that fashion. Um, but I don't think uh, that, um, you know, even though they were getting beaten territorially and, uh, you know, shot share, uh, all that kind of stuff, uh, the Blues, uh, you know, they had some great chances uh, in moments in the second half of Game 5 and Game 6. But I thought that Vancouver, you know, uh, held its own, didn't give up the middle of the ice as much as it did in Games 3 and 4. So I think the five-on-five play has improved um, from the regular season, and I'm sure that's something the coaching staff looked at uh, over the pause and said, if we are to do anything in the playoffs, this has to be an improvement. You know, Another surprise for me is just just how, and maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but just how good Quinn Hughes has been. Uh, You don't need to shelter him. Uh, He's playing 23 minutes a night. Uh, He is by far Vancouver's best defenseman. He can control a game uh from the back end and, and defensively he has not looked out of play. So I think my two biggest takeaways uh so far um is the the improved five and five play and uh just how dominant Quinn Hughes has been.
0: I would say that Travis Green didn't officially become a Vancouver Canucks coach until coaching a playoff series, and not only that, but facing some criticism, which was sent his way, I think, primarily after Game 3, maybe a little bit after Game 4, and to your point, Murph, about the 5-on-5 play, in the last two games, a lot of that has to do with the way that Travis deployed his lines and decided mm-hmm. to be a little bit more creative than maybe uh, we've seen him be in the past. What did you see in the last two games from Travis Green and the coaching staff, is what they did, with, especially up front, but a little bit on defense as well, given that Myers has been out since, uh, since Game 2?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the adjustments have been key. Um, you know, and it's you know, such a stark contrast to the last time the Canucks were in the playoffs with Willie D, who never, ever wanted to change the lines. You can all remember the postgame stuff. Yeah, I thought about it, but then I decided to stay with what we had. And right. It didn't work. Um, so, you know, Travis uh, doesn't have that much patience. Uh, even during the regular season, he was known as a guy that would shorten the bench. He'd pick the guys who he thought were playing the best, and he would play those guys, and he would mix the lines up. Um, but I think he had to do it out of necessity. Uh, the top line of the Blues was so dominant in games three and four that he had to figure out a way to, you know, balance things a little bit more, force Berube to pick uh, his poison uh, and in order to free up some of his guys. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, the Vertana move is one that I don't think many people thought was going to happen. I mean, I think when he plays with those guys, it's high event hockey, but he scores at a pretty good rate uh, with those two players. So you're taking a chance defensively, but you're giving the boost offensively. And I think that Travis Green has to be given credit for that. Because he realized that if he didn't make those changes, they were going to get buried and they were going to get beaten. And sometimes changes are out of necessity through injury, like on the back end, Uh, but sometimes you have to do it just to change the course of action. And, uh, you know, I applaud Travis Green for that because, um, you know, it takes some guts, uh, but I also think it was necessary. And if it wasn't done, I don't think we'd be talking about the series being over right now.
0: Dan Murphy joins us on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair on Sportsnet 650. We're going to ask Brian Burke this uh, coming up later in the show about the the tangible value that this experience has for these players and how someone in the organization, someone in a management role would, would view these games. Uh, you've, you're around the team. You've been around the team for a long time, and, and you know this group quite well. From that perspective, what is this experience, whether it is taking into account the fact that they're doing it in this bubble setup that's completely unique, but that, they're, that they've that they gone head-to-head with a couple of tough teams, that they've survived it, and now they're heading into a series against the team that some people might say is the best in the league. What mm-hmm. what does that mean for this group, and what what are they taking from it?
3: Well, I mean, I'll say this. I, you know, I, I don't know—I'm not sure what it means to guys like Hughes and Patterson. I think they're just wired that they were going to succeed in the playoffs— regardless i don't know if that makes sense that we shouldn't be surprised they rise to the occasion and you know i know Petterson was playoff mvp in sweden um uh, leading them to a championship of actual so i like i'm not surprised so much with those two that they've risen to the occasion perhaps uh you know to the degree they have is a little bit of surprise but where i think it's valuable are to some of the other players players like troy stetcher who was thrust into a bigger role and him and edler had some tough games no doubt in games three and four <laughs> But I think uh, these types of experiences for a player like him um, is it, going to go a long way. For players like McEwen, uh, I think will help. Uh, Jake for So I think there is, uh, you know, a tangible benefit to playing, even though it's in the bubble, uh, to playing these games and seeing, you know, what, you know, they will cliche what it takes to win. Um, you have some veterans there. I mean, I think Pearson's been very underrated. You can tell that he's battle tested. Uh, same goes with JT Miller. who's had a couple of long playoff runs. Uh, and the other one, uh, perhaps the biggest one of all, is Markstrom. I mean, he had the longest break of all, hadn't played since uh, February 22nd, I believe, had the procedure on his knee, uh, but he continues to be Vancouver's MVP. So I think there are, you can pick out certain players that this is really helping, uh, without a doubt, um, but I'm not sure I would say I'd put Pettersson and Hughes in there because I just don't think they needed to experience it to learn from it. I think they were good enough to step in and play like this.
2: Murphy, you mentioned Markstrom there. Uh, He is a UFA, as is Chris Tanev coming up. I'm just wondering, how much do you think the last three weeks have changed the perspective of Canucks management as to where this group is at and whether they are, quote-unquote, entering their window and how much that will affect the decision with Markstrom, knowing that Demko's sitting there and I guess the Seattle expansion draft is also on the horizon?
3: Yeah, I mean I, a few things. I, I think Markstrom, the, the desire has always been to get it done, um, and I don't think this performance changes that. I think they wanted to do it anyway. Uh, so I think he's priority number one. Um, priority number two, I'm not sure if it's Tanov or Toffoli, but um, perhaps Toffoli forces your hand there. Maybe he is looking to go back to California. His wife works for the Dodgers. Maybe the desire for him, and I'm just I'm I'm guessing here. I have no inside knowledge. Or maybe the desire for him is to you know, perhaps. Uh, not sign with uh, with Vancouver, so maybe that is uh, opening the door for Canada a little bit. Um, but I, I think you have to sign Markstrom, and then you are deal with the expansion later. Maybe you have to deal uh, Thatcher Demko. Maybe you play that chip to get another piece that you need. Um, you know, and the window thing, I'm not sure. Like I, I don't think that the Canucks are legitimate contenders this year. I mean, things are weird and things happen. Uh, but to go through, you know. Vegas and then Colorado perhaps and then Tampa or Boston. I you know, I just don't think that's going to happen, but you never know. Um I think the window is probably, you know, realistically the real window is a couple of years away. Uh but that said, uh to have that window count, you have to sign marks from now. And the good thing with him is there's not a ton of miles on him, right? He didn't have a lot of starts before the age of 25. I kind of blossom late, so maybe he has more life into his early 30s than some other goaltenders. Uh, so I think that has to factor in as well. But Markstrom's priority number one. And then you you figure out what you need to do with Toffoli, uh if he wants to resign um, and Tanov as well. So I think there's a, a good chance two of those three will be resigned. And then, of course, you have to look at Vertanen and Stetcher as well the the RFA market. Now, um, I don't know if luck is the right word, but uh, you'd Maybe get relief with Furland if he's unable to go next year, uh, so maybe that helps. But I don't think they'll know that until you know whatever late in the off season, whenever that is, uh, Christmas time.
2: What can Canucks fans expect in the next series against the Knights, a team that Canucks have historically, in the three seasons that they've been here, not done particularly well against.
3: Well, I mean, I think the scary thing is uh, we know that Vancouver's transition defense uh, this season was lacking, and that is absolutely. Vegas's uh, strength, uh, you know, Vegas' top three lines all are dangerous offensively. I mean, the third line, I don't know which third line is better, Vegas's or Tampa's, but both are just absolutely uh, fantastic. Chandler Stevenson is a revelation uh, in my mind. Um, so I think that the, you know, the transition defense is going to have to be uh, improved, much the way the 5-5 five five was for the first two series. Um, I mean, I think Lenner is a handful in that. Um, so it should be interesting though. I mean, like at this point, you you know, you can't say Vancouver has no chance because of the way they've played so far. I think it's going to be a tough test. Um, I think you're going from perhaps the most well-known two-way player in the league in O'Reilly to perhaps the most underrated two-way player in, uh, Stone. Uh, so I, I think it could be a lot of fun. I think it'd be high event. Uh, you've also got high, high end talent on both sides. And so I expect it to be a a pretty exciting series. I think actually both series in the West should be a lot of fun to watch.
0: Well, uh, Canucks fans will certainly be looking forward to it. While Edmonton may not be your preferred August summer destination, Murph, (laughs) uh, we're looking forward to seeing you back on the broadcasts. And uh, thanks a lot for taking the time and doing this with us today.
3: All right. No worries, boys. Uh, Good luck on the show. Thanks for having me.
0: That's uh, Sportsnet's Dan Murphy joins us on air, Sportsnet 650. He's been around the team for a long time. I think it's over over twenty years now. Um, yeah, and
2: he'd, he'd go back to probably early two
0: thousands. Yeah, so. with that he's he lived been through the West Coast Express era. Uh, certainly was there with the Luongo Sedin era, and the last ten years have been lean. And I, I think his point of uh, that's exactly what I was thinking when I asked the Travis Green question about Willie Desjardins in that playoff series and the criticism that he took for not being creative with his lines against Calgary and that series turned when the Canucks coach did not make that decision. While I agree with Murph that I think this series turned in that second period in game five when JT Miller put the team on his back for about 10 minutes, that was something that was able to happen in some respect because of uh, what Travis Green did with his lines.
2: Yeah, and and to your point, J.T. Miller had that moment, and there were te- there were players throughout. Tyler Mott stepped up. Bo Horvat, you know, led the charge through the first two games. The backbone to me throughout the entire series was was Jacob Markstrom. He, I think, pl- the way he played allowed the Canucks to find their footing at times when they were shaky, and other guys rose to the occasion on different nights, and it's uh, they knock off the champs.
0: All right, coming up next, more Canucks talk. We'll dive into Pedersen and Hughes's performance. Understated but not undervalued. You're on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.
1: You're listening to Sportsnet Today on the home of Vancouver Hockey, Sportsnet 650.
0: Sportsnet Today rolls on, on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair, Sportsnet 650. You can always text the show, text the station six fifty six fifty. You can get us on Twitter. I'm at Israel Fair and Alex is at ACPW Blair. Uh, could have thrown some more letters of the alphabet in there, buddy. <laughs> I have a
2: lot of middle names, and Alex Blair is a fairly common name. So <laughs> trying to find a yeah, I've just gone with that. So
0: it's... Uh, Josh Elliot Wolf is also here with us. We are talking Canucks after a huge Game 6 series-clinching win over the St. Louis Blues. Before we dive deeper into that, and we're going to spend some time breaking down the performances from Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson in particular. Some news out of the bubble. That uh, appears like Mike Milbury, NBC's Mike Milbury, will not be part of NDP's broadcast going forward. Uh guess it was Thursday night uh, with some comments that he made that uh, women might be a distraction for players. And, and, and within the bubble, they're not there. So players can focus on hockey. Was uh, taken off subsequent broadcasts and now appears to have left the bubble. I know that uh, yesterday on the station, Emily Kaplan was on. Uh, I believe it was uh, Canuck Central with uh, uh, Scotty and um, Bick to talk about that, and uh, we may we may revisit that a little bit later in the show because it, it's it was a talking point. Mike Milbury in the states anyway is a big time commentator. And he will not be calling playoff games moving forward. Uh, So that is something to keep an eye on. All right, back to the Canucks. For me, this series, Alex, you can break down game by game. We did our first show together last Saturday after game two. And we spent a lot of time talking about Bo Horvat. That was Bo Horvat's game Friday in game two. He set the stage in the first game with a couple of really nice goals and then Elevated to another level in game two, overtime winner, huge, huge goals for this team, and really indicative of his journey with this franchise since he was drafted in 2013, this year becoming captain, and that was the defining player for the Canucks in that game two win. I look at game five, and Jacob Markstrom was huge in that second period where it looked like the series was slipping away. But they needed to get some goals. Someone needed to pick up Jacob Markstrom, and that was JT Miller, who scored the goal to make it 3-2 and then did a lot of the handiwork in the offensive zone to set up Jake Furtanen for the game-tying goal. All of a sudden, the Canucks were off to the races, and really since then, through Game 6, they've looked like a different team. And then last night, you're looking at another two-goal performance from Tyler Mott, Antoine Roussel with a big goal to make it 2 nothing Uh, which is something that he has done occasionally throughout his Canucks career. The last couple of years, he's been able to come through with some of those big goals at at a really clutch time, if you will. Troy Stetcher got in on the scoring. Uh, Brock Besser got a power play goal. It wasn't a game defined by Elias Pettersson or Quinn Hughes. I think if you look at the series, you wouldn't say that Elias Pettersson or Quinn Hughes defined any game. But they were the two best players for the Canucks in this series. And Hughes had some games, I think, especially early. And you mentioned earlier, didn't have to play all that much yesterday. And Travis Green hasn't been afraid to play him. This was an opportunity to give him some rest because he's going to be heading into a pretty big matchup. And Pedersen, sort of the same thing, has been just hugely consistent. And Dan Murphy just said it with us. He had no concerns. He had no qualms about those guys stepping into this situation. And thriving because this is how they're wired. This is the success that they've had before coming here. What is it about I guess let's let's start with Hughes specifically. We 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 do have a text in 650-650 uh from Tim in Vancouver. Quinn Hughes reminds me of Brian Leach. We've heard Brian Leach, we've heard Scott Niedermeyer. These are top of the line skating geniuses almost. Ability to handle the puck defensemen that have a massive impact on the game. And it's just, it's all, it, no one in Vancouver is taking it for granted because the Canucks have never had a defenseman like this. But when you see it game in, game out in the playoffs, it is, it is really awe inspiring, isn't it? Oh, he, I think he's been the biggest
2: change for the Canucks. And in some ways, I think the way he is playing through these playoffs is one of the biggest factors why the Canucks have been able to play the way they have and it's it has been surprising but think about it for a second remove quinn hughes off this roster this was his rookie year he came in last year played a couple games at the end of last season we got glimpses and i think there was hope that quinn could be a very dynamic defenseman but the defensive position usually takes several years at the nhl level to figure out your gaps spacing those types of things quinn has kind of kicked open the door and especially in the playoffs, he's taken it to another level. But if you take him off the roster, this team is dramatically different from the back end when you think of puck possession, you think of offensive chances, you think of the way he controls the power play. He has, and, and when you look at the breakdown too between forwards and defense, being one of six defensemen versus one of 12 forwards, his impact on the game is incredible. I feel a little bit like I'm nitpicking the Mona Lisa here, but I actually thought last night was Quinn's weakest game of the series. There were a couple plays where he took some chances and it didn't work out, where the rest of the series, it seemed everything he did was just, you know, it was almost like he was skating circles around other players. Just the way the way he can head fake, the way he can skate. And it was also nice because earlier in the series... Some of Quinn's ice time, I think he played 28 minutes, 29 minutes, especially after Tyler Myers went out. But last night and in Game 5, Travis has been able to balance both the forward lines a little bit more. So Pedersen and Besser's numbers have been able to come down. JT Miller's numbers have been coming coming down from 23, 24 minutes a game to 19, 20 minutes. And Quinn was able to play 18 minutes last night. Um, Alex Edler played a lot more than Quinn. And, you know, he played as much as Jordy Ben last night. They were able to roll all three defensive pairings. But when you look at what he adds to the back end and the way that sets up the entire offense and puck possession for the Canucks, he is... We we talked about it a little bit with Murph, and I don't think the Canucks are in their window yet either. But I do wonder if with Pedersen and Besser and JT Miller here, and where you've got Markstrom and Quinn Hughes... And you see the economics of the NHL and how these guys are going to get paid coming out of their entry-level contracts. I wonder if it's moved up Jim's timeline in thinking, why are we not entering our window next season or the season after? And I'm not saying that the Canucks are expected to win the Stanley Cup next year. But I think we're entering a window where Bo, Bo Horvat's 25, Elias Petterson's 21, why is the next five or six years not the window here? And maybe that does start to impact your decision, whether you are continuing on with Jacob Markstrom as opposed to moving over to Thatcher Demko. Because you can see how much Jacob Markstrom's play has allowed this team to find its confidence and play the way it's playing.
1: Yeah, and I think to your point, Quinn Hughes has really changed the way the whole team plays. And you saw it a bit in Patterson's rookie year when he would try to create these plays, whether it's on the power play or at even strength. And he had Besser to play off of, but that was kind of about it. Yeah, for sure. And, And now he's getting these plays in transition with Hughes getting the puck to him and Hughes being able to create on the power play as well. So it's really changed a lot of different facets of the team's game. And I think when you talk about the window, capitalizing on ELCs has been like a really prominent idea lately. And I don't think I think Edmonton tried to a little bit, but they didn't go fully in with McDavid and Dreisidal. Yep. Uh, but it hasn't really been capitalized on by any major in any major way around the league. Like you think back to the last team with a core that was on ELCs was like probably Chicago when they won their first cup. And it it's it's a good thought and it I think it needs to be explored more. I just don't know if the turnaround can be good or quick enough to get it into next year.
2: Well, and we're going to talk to Brian Burke about this at the top of uh, the next hour. Yeah. What can you learn from the Toronto Maple Leafs? Toronto Maple Leafs took it right down to the wood and they rebuilt through the draft. Uh, William Nylander, Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner. They all got paid coming out of their entry levels and it took up an immense amount of the cap space that Toronto has. Mm -hmm. And, what was thought three or four years ago of a team on the rise. And there were a lot of the similar comparisons that we're hearing now to the 09 Blackhawks and they have not been able to find that depth because so much of that money, well, and you add in the the free agent signing of John Tavares, so much of that money's taken, but it'll be interesting to hear what Brian has to think as the economics of the NHL have changed here in the last few years. And this will be the first chance the Canucks are having to come through this because, Unlike Besser, where I think there were still some questions whether they wanted to commit big money long-term, those questions do not exist for Elias Pettersson, and those no. questions are not going to exist for Quinn Hughes.
0: No, they, they're they going to set the market. I think Josh's point is a good one because it's an easier said-than-done situation. Of course, the value is there if players like Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes are going to perform on their entry-level contracts. And I think part of this... Started to happen because of the NFL, where young quarterbacks, specifically the Seahawks and Russell Wilson, they were able to overpay at other positions or they were able to go in and pay luxury positions on their roster to build a Super Bowl contender and eventually a, a Super Bowl winner. And that became the thing that was in vogue. You can't pay your quarterbacks because it's the most valuable position on the roster. And if you have a really good one, you have to pay them $40 million. Well, if you have one like Russell Wilson, who at the time was making rookie contract as a third round pick, all of a sudden you can go out and you can get Michael Bennett to play on your defensive line. You can go out and you can have some more of these luxury pieces, these good players in places that otherwise you would be just trying to get by with. And so the Canucks try to do it a little differently. They've, As you said earlier in the show, Alex, have been drafting in the top 10 or in the top 5 for quite a while. And so there was the possibility that they would end up with a couple of good players. Those two in particular are the cream of the crop from their draft classes. And then I would say even, let's say the last 5 years. If you were to do a redraft of the players drafted in the last 5 years, they're going in the top 10. Quite possibly in the top five. That's that's going to ch- that's going to change everything. And when they have a series like they did against the St. Louis Blues, where while well, Quinn Hughes did have a couple of games where he was out there all the time and his presence was huge, it it was a bit understated. And that that couldn't be that couldn't be any better news uh, for the Canucks heading into a series against a Vegas team that's going to be a truckload.
2: You've got Bo Horvat on a good contract. Bo has continued to evolve. We we saw glimpses at the beginning of this series that Bo has another level, especially f- offensively. Jake Vertanen is going to be the biggest question mark. I thought after Game 4 we had seen the last game with the Canucks for Jake Vertanen. I, I thought he would be scratched for Game 5. Travis Green figures out a way to redeploy him with JT Miller finds a little bit of life and Jake has gone from playing 4 minutes and 50 seconds in game 2 up to he played as much as Brock Besser in game 6 at just over 12 minutes. So credit to credit to Travis Green for for you know continually trying to find something in Jake Forten and credit to Jake for you know finding something in the last half of this series to Murph's point. That'll that'll be another question with Troy Stecher whether or not they can afford these guys. And when you have the arbitration rights that Jake's ha- Jake has, I still question whether Jake will be here next season. But even if you look at, you know, I think Bo is a hit with the Canucks in the 2013 draft, and we talked about that last week. Pedersen's a hit in 2017. We get Besser, the Canucks get Besser in 2015. You've got Quinn Hughes in 2018. And the the one player that we're still not talking about as far as the window, and he will be here, is Vasily Podkolzin, who by all accounts is a very good player and will add something to this group. And he will also be on a fairly affordable contract when he comes over from Russia.
0: Plenty more Canucks talk to come on Air Israel Fair. Alex Blair, Josh Elliott-Wolf with us as well. We'll talk to Brian Burke coming up just after 1 o'clock. But there's, there's another story. In the world of sports, and this is now the COVID-19 world of sports, Alex, there was a story out of uh, the NCAA college football that is not specific to that sport. It is something that I think athletes across the world in sports are going to have to keep an eye on. And A college football athlete, a Georgia State quarterback, is not going to play this season. There are questions about whether or not they're going to get a football season in the NCAA off at all. But regardless of that, this Georgia State quarterback will not play this year uh, because he had COVID-19 and is now having some complications uh, due to that. And that's a story that caught your eye this week.
2: Yeah, as you know, like all of us, we are living through a pandemic with a novel virus and disease. And we, you know, a lot of the doctors are reporting that we do not know the long-term effects. And it was one of the questions that a lot of Athletes, Whether it was in baseball or currently with the NFL, and especially with hockey, there were teams that were incredibly concerned about coming back to play, not knowing what the long-term impacts are. And on Thursday, uh, Michele Colasardo, who's the freshman quarterback for Georgia State University out of Atlanta, announced that he will no longer be playing this season. And the backstory here is he was diagnosed with COVID-19 in late July. He went home to quarantine with his family in South Carolina, and he returned to school last week in Atlanta, where they retested him. He tested negative twice, so they knew that he no longer had COVID-19. But at the advice of a trainer, he went to get his heart checked, and he underwent an EKG and a cardiogram, and the test revealed something abnormal, and he ended up visiting the cardiologist, where he's been diagnosed with... What is now a word that is spreading across college football and the U.S., myocarditis, which is an inflammation of the heart muscle, and it's linked to COVID-19. And Colasardo announced the following day that under the advice from his doctors, he will not be able to play. And there is some risk, and they're still determining this, if this could lead to, you know— heart failure, a cardiac arrest of people that we, at an age, that we would not commonly expect. And they're saying, you know, early indications from doctors are that 10 to 20% of people that get COVID-19 are susceptible to myocarditis, this inflammation of the heart muscle. And while it's not directly linked, there have been a few people that have pointed to former Florida State basketball player, Michael Ojo who actually died earlier this month of a heart attack at age 27 after contracting COVID-19 the month prior. So this is something that I think we're going to hear a lot more. Um, there has been... Um, actually, one of your colleagues at The Athletic, Nicole Arbach, has reported that the Big Ten, one of the big conferences in college football, yep. is aware of at least 10 cases of myocarditis within their conference. Right. So this is something that is really sort of taken the college football world by storm. But as you mentioned off the top, this is not exclusive to college football. This is a COVID, possibly COVID-related, you know, implication. Yeah. And, you know, you think of the NHL players that are in the bubble that we've been talking about and the numbers so far, the NHL has done a terrific job. But these are long-term health complications and effects that could happen. And specifically with athletes that are competing in in high-performance sports, their body is, you know, the part that, you know, that's their physical gift. And if all of a sudden the, the centerpiece, the heart of that, isn't able to perform or is greatly impacted, that's, that's a major story. And I think we're going to hear more about this going forward.
0: And it has already affected professional sports. The Boston Red Sox lost their opening day starter this year, Eduardo Rodriguez, to this exact situation. Uh, diagnosed with COVID during the spring, tried to come back with the baseball season coming back, and is, is having these heart inflammation issues. And it's going to be interesting, I think, most notably on two fronts. The first, directly related to college football, they're not professional athletes. They're not being paid. Yes, they have their scholarships, but what kind of liability <laughs> Would these universities be on the hook for if there is going to be rampant COVID-19 diagnoses going through different conferences, different teams, different programs, and all of a sudden a handful of those players are having these heart issues? It is good that they have access to medical professionals. They have access to doctors and trainers that are able to detect the stuff, but... That's, that's a scary part uh, for the players and the individuals, certainly, but the programs in general. And that makes me think too, as you said, Alex, the NHL players right now are in a bubble. We're already talking about what's next year going to look like. The NBA has already said, eh, December might not be the time that we come back. We'd like to have fans in the stands from a business perspective. Well, this might also be part of it. Because if a professional athlete is exposed to COVID, And there is a 20% chance that it could seriously and significantly affect their short or their long-term output as a professional athlete. That's a pretty serious consideration. And not just their output as an athlete, but their life. You know,
2: if, if you're at risk of heart failure, cardiac arrest, that's something that, you know, it'd be really curious right now to know how many players in the NHL bubble, for example, are aware of this. This is a story that sort of, broke if you will and it's still been fairly quiet but late this week and you know we don't know specifically which nhl players have had covid and like a lot of people some of them may have had it and not known as the test for antibodies and whether you've had it or or haven't had it you know we're not there yet but if there's a 10 or 20 percent chance that you could have sudden heart failure or the possibility especially in uh you know a high physical output sport that's something that I think the NHL should, you know, the, the NHL will keep an eye on. And it's something that seems to be developing right now.
0: It is absolutely a story that we will continue to track. Uh, as Alex mentioned, uh, The Athletic, where uh, I work my day job as an editor, has been over all over this story from a college football perspective. And uh, when we're on the air with you on Saturday, we will continue to track this story because it has wide-ranging effects in the world of sports. All right, coming up next... You remember him fondly as the general manager of the Vancouver Canucks. Now you hear him on Sportsnet, for the most part, unleashing a lot of fire takes. That's Brian Burke. He'll join us next to break down this Canucks series win and what it would mean from the perspective of a general manager. We'll do that next. You're on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 6. Listening to Sportsnet Today on the official home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. On air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair rolls on. Sportsnet Today, Sportsnet 650. After a massive, massive, massive win from the Vancouver Canucks. It is no exaggeration to say it's... Their biggest win in nearly a decade, 2011, run to the Stanley Cup. Two playoff appearances in the two years after that, not out of the first round. Some feelings of hope in 2015, and then a steady, steady climb, uh, a steady incline. Almost, (laughs) we're we're two North Van guys, Alex. It was like grouse grind esque for the Canucks uh, to get back to to this place. As always, you can text the show, you can text the station, the home of the Canucks. Uh, The number is 650-650. You can also get us on Twitter at Sportsnet650 with your your thoughts on the Canucks, your observations on this series, and uh, this series that's coming up right now, a big one for this Vancouver Canucks team as they face off against a pretty darn tough Vegas Golden Knights team. All right, he's on the line now. You hear him on Sportsnet. He was in this city for a long time as an executive, uh, as a general manager. And uh, he's Brian Burke, the, the one and only Brian Burke joins us now on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Brian, thanks for
2: doing this.
4: Hey, yeah, you're welcome. Sorry. Thanks for having me on.
2: Just uh, we'll start here. What impressed you most about the Vancouver Canucks in their series against the St. Louis Blues, Brian?
4: Well, I think their stars stepped up. I think their secondary scoring is good, but I think the, the biggest factor was the goaltender.
2: Israel and I were chatting this morning, Brian, just about the role of Jim Benning. You get to this part of the year, and you know most of the work that I think the fans and people on the outside think is done. But I wanted to ask you as a former GM, what's Jim going through right now as, as he assesses his team and tries to figure out where they are at in their evolution and their maturity as a group?
4: Well, he's sweating it out like you do in the playoffs. <laughs> everyone said, you uh, know, we went to the Stanley Cup finals and then the next year we won it. And everyone said, you must have really enjoyed that. And I'm like, are you kidding me? It's, it's misery because there's nothing you can do as a GM once the playoffs start. After the trade deadline, you just watch and pray like everybody else. It's a miserable time. No, it's way more fun than losing, but it's not, uh you sweat through the games, you don't sleep right, you worry about everything and, It's no fun, I can tell you that. It beats losing, but it's no fun.
2: As you watch this, Brian, what do you think Jim's learning about his young group that he may not have realized before the playoffs started three weeks ago?
4: Well, I think he's got a good handle on his team. I think he's done a good job. I mean, the the guys that they drafted are doing what they're supposed to do. The free agent signing or the trade for J.T. Miller, I think, has paid great dividends. Uh, He's done a good job. So it just... They've got cap issues and he'll worry about those in the off season, but lots of teams with cap issues. So right now it's just see if you can find a way to win this next series.
0: Brian, in your management career, management experience, you were with teams that were at the absolute mountaintop of the NHL. And then you were some teams that were uh, digging through a bit of a rebuild. There's always this talk about the value of getting these playoff games, whether it's for the young players, whether it's for the veteran players as a GM, when you're watching your team, evaluating your team in the postseason and getting feedback from from players that are playing in these games, what is the tangible output of, of that experience and that value that that these young Canucks are getting, beating the Defending Cup champs and now heading into a series against the team that's probably just as good as anybody in the league right now?
4: There's no substitute for it. It's invaluable. You can't put a value on it. Um, the reason we won the Cup when we did, the year before we went to the conference finals, and I'm convinced that experience is what allowed us to win the following year. So to me, there's, there's no substitute for it. Um, that's why you look at Montreal, so they're out now, but those young players got to play you know two rounds of the playoffs and the play-in round and then the playoffs. So that experience is going to benefit them for the next decade. I mean, there is no substitute for it. I think it's fantastic.
2: Brian, looking at the work that Jim has with this roster, uh, we've got UFAs in Jacob Markstrom is probably at the forefront. And knowing that the flat cap exists, I'm wondering what Vancouver and Jim can look for, um, can learn from Toronto and what they went through with their top young players as they sign contracts coming out of their entry levels.
4: Well, I think he's done a good job with this, getting his young players locked up at reasonable money. Um Obviously, the goaltender presents the challenge, and they are talking about a flat cap for two years. It's going to be flat for five years, in my view. I don't think the revenues are going to come back on the business side of the business for some time. So, uh, But all the teams that are going through it, and at least if you have cap trouble, at least have some playoff success. At least have some of it be earned, and that's what's great about what they're doing now.
2: With that in mind, if, if if you put yourself in Jim's shoes, Brian, knowing that the the Seattle expansion draft is on the horizon, he's got a 24 year old Thatcher Demko with not a lot of NHL experience waiting in the wings, and then you've got Jacob Markstrom playing the way he's playing. What, what would you be? How would you be negotiating this from a team standpoint, and knowing you know the the sort of the pitfalls you've got to navigate here?
4: Well, I wouldn't be doing anything right now. I think it would be a distraction for the player. I'd say to him, look, you're playing great. Keep it going, and we'll decide. Uh, We'll sit down after the season. But with every player I ever had, we set our budget internally, and then we didn't move off that offer. So we put a great deal of time and effort into the first offer, almost like we are going arbitration. And if you put the time and effort into your first offer and make a realistic offer, you've got a chance of getting the player signed. If you don't, you don't. So to me... They set an internal, you know, they do their research, set an internal number, set an internal internal term in terms of the number of years you're willing to commit to. He's not a young man, this goaltender. And if that doesn't do it, then your decision has been made easy for you. But this notion that this guy got that, so we got to pay that. I never ascribed to that theory. We always set our prices internally. Same with trades. On trade, we, we said if we were going after a guy, we said, this is what we'll go to and nothing more. And we stuck to it. Same with free agents. July 1st, we would set, you know, we tried tried to sign Brad Richards when I was with Toronto. We set the the budget internally, made an offer. We were told it's a joke compared to what we're going to get from other teams. And I said, okay, we'll move on.
0: Brian Burke joins us on air. Israel Fair, Alex Blair, Sportsnet 650. Now that we're on to the second round, Brian, and we've seen the teams that played the round robin, I think for the most most part, most of them needed a little time to get that playoff jump in them. Uh, we saw the teams in the play-in round that, that got off to good starts, for the most part, carry that over into the first round and, and now on to the second round. Across the league, which teams do you feel like are playing at, at their absolute best? and Is, is Vegas in that discussion?
4: Yeah. I, to, in my way of thinking, the teams that got their guys in early in phase two uh, seem to be having the most success. When you talk to the GMs that are still playing, they had most of their guys in early. And uh, I think everyone right now is sitting on all leagues. Owners. I don't see one team that's limping into this round. And for the Canucks, the hill just gets steeper. I mean, they're playing a better team and the St. Louis Blues are a great team, just won a cup and Virtually that entire roster was back, but they seemed off a little bit, and their goaltending was leaky, which they weren't expecting, obviously. So um, I think everyone's running on all eight cylinders now. Now it's about execution, special teams, staying out of the box, all the cliches, but that's what it's about now.
2: George McPhee, who was a protege of yours here in Vancouver, uh, got a lot of credit the first year with the team that he put together through the expansion draft in Vegas. They are in many ways a very similar group, but he has made some changes, most notably behind the bench. What can Canucks fans expect with this Vegas Golden Knights team as they head into the second round?
4: Well, they're, they're deep, they're fast, they're big. Uh, I was just texting with George. I talked to him earlier today and then we were texting and I said, your forward group looks a lot like my forward group from the cup team. They're big. They've got a a real legitimate fourth line, a a crash and bang. Uh, They've got speed. They've got size. It's it's a big group of forwards. Uh, Their defense, they're almost all left shots except for White Cloud, which I, I, you know, I'd like to have some diversity there, but they seem to not mind playing the offside. Um, they're going to see a really good hockey team that's big, that can score goals, and is very physical. So it's it's going to be a, it's a challenge. I mean, if I had to bet money on this, I'm betting on Vegas.
2: If there's an opportunity for the Canucks, knowing the way they play and the series they've come off of with St. Louis, where's the advantage, if any, that Vancouver has in this series?
4: Well, I believe they split in the regular season, if I'm not mistaken. I think Vegas won one and Vancouver won one. I think 10 have won it in overtime, I think, the Vancouver win. and uh, So they've played relatively even. Um, I think they've got to have a real good start, the Canucks. I think they've got to have, get the same great goal that they've gotten so far. I, I think you can make a case that Markstrom's been the best goalie in the playoffs, and uh, that has to continue. I think he had one bad game in the last series. Otherwise, he was brilliant. Um, but I think they're, if you look around the league, nobody picked Vancouver to win that series. So they're playing with house money, and I think that gives you psychological advantage. No one thought we'd be here, so let's go for it. Let's see what we can do.
0: As you know, Brian, people in the city tend to have a very long memory. So after the first series win in almost 10 years and the first series in the playoffs – since the Canucks played Calgary in 2015, there's been a lot of revisiting of of what happened in the past, how the Canucks got here. And some of that has gone back to that 2015 series with Calgary. And uh, I know that, that you were obviously involved in that. The Flames at that time felt like they were on the precipice of, of being one of the dominant teams, at least in the Western conference. And we saw that in the regular season last year, this season, some ups and downs and, there were a lot of positive moments in the playoffs, but then the way it ended is one that has a lot of people in Calgary, I think, asking a lot of questions. What, what's your view on, on what happened with, with the Flames in that series, and, and what, what's the, the plan possibly going forward?
4: Well, I think, you know, from my perspective, it, it, the, the better team won. I thought even in some of the Calgary wins, they got outplayed for good chunks of the game. And so, to me, the better team won. Uh, I think people are overreacting because it was such an ugly ending. You have a 3 nothing lead and then you fall apart. And that's what people will remember about that series, not how well Calgary played at times. So there's going to be some head scratching and pondering going on in Calgary. You can't have a, an exit like that that ends ugly in a Canadian market without lots of hand-wringing and second-guessing. So there'll be a lot of questions asked, and th- that's legitimate, I think.
2: Brian, you were there at the beginning when Johnny Goudreau came onto the scene and was performing at a very high level, and it looked like he would only grow from there. What has happened to Johnny?
4: Well, he's still an elite player. Obviously, this is two bad playoffs in a row. A year ago, they won one game against Colorado, and then were swept. So it's two years in a row where he has not performed statistically, and if he's not performing statistically, he's not an asset. He doesn't do other things well. But the fact of the matter is, he's an elite player. He puts up good numbers. He makes his line mates better. He's a great kid. But that seems to be the from looking at the clips and hearing social media. That seems he seems to be the target on this re- most recent failure.
0: Brian Burke on air with us, Sportsnet six fifty. You mentioned the 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 part of being part of being with the Canadian market. Uh, some of the challenges that might come with that. Travis Green felt the negatives part of that, I think, after Game 3 and Game 4 in this Canucks series and has redeemed himself big time, at least within the perspective of the market, with the way that uh, he handled his players, his deployment, and having his team uh, ready. And as Alex said earlier, to be able to be resilient against a team like St. Louis that really seems to never stop coming. What is that challenge for a coach in that playoff environment where... Even if there aren't fans in the stands this season, uh, they know that the markets they care deeply about uh, the status of the team, how the team is playing what what is that challenge like for a head coach
4: well i i mean when I, when I worked when I first worked in Vancouver as assistant GM for Pat Quinn, I was there for five years and social media didn't exist or if it, it did, it wasn't a big force at all and what's changed the two biggest changes in my tenure as a GM in my 30-plus years working for teams, the two biggest changes are the evolution of the goaltending position and the emergence of social media. And so my view is, I never paid any attention to any of it, and that's my advice to any culture GM in the NHL: don't pay attention to it. And Vancouver's a notorious market; they're fickle. They've got a they've got a real dichotomy in their fan base. So people love the team no matter what. People, you lose one game and they, they want to <laughs> fire the coach.
2: Brian, you and I had the opportunity to work together at the NHL Scouting Combine for a couple of years for Hockey Night in Canada. And I remember vividly when a young Quinn Hughes came in for the 2018 draft and he was someone that you were very familiar with because his dad, Jim, was on your staff in Toronto. I'm just wondering if you could give me your perspective. Obviously, he was a very small player. I'm wondering, give me your perspective on how he's evolved so quickly and uh, and what you see out of Quinn and how, how much he's impacted the Vancouver Canucks blue line.
4: Well, I I said on the broadcast, I said, that's a small man. But I wasn't, um, and that's the only reason they were able to draft him where they drafted him. Right. If he was 6'2", he'd have gone much higher. And the fact of the matter is, he is a small man. But he was, I first met him. And I remember he was like six or seven and we had our skating party and there's these three kids down in on one end of the rink. And one of them is obviously elite. And I said, Who, who's, who's, kids are those? And Jimmy Hughes said, they're my kids. I said, how old's the, how old's Quinn? And he was like, uh, he's seven. And I thought he was like 10 the way he was skating around. Like he was elite there at a very early age, like phenomenal. Like both the parents are really good athletes themselves uh, he's got two brothers. One playing pro hockey, and the other one's going to. Uh, he, he's been an elite player, and they would come to practice and skate after the guys got done. And so I've have watched him mature. Like I don't know if I've ever seen a skater like in my entire life that is better at, with his edge work than Quinn Hughes. And his vision is phenomenal. He, he's just scratching the surface of what he's going to be. Like what you see now is greatness, and he's going to get better. He's going to get stronger. He's going to get more mature, but he's got a couple things that are elite. His skating, his vision, and then the third thing is he's got a great ability to be evasive. And if you're going to be a small guy that carries the puck a lot, you've got a sense when there's a danger coming, and you've got to get rid of that puck or turn back or do whatever. And he rarely gets it hard. It's pretty impressive, and it's a skill that a small elite defenseman needs to develop, and he's got that going really well
0: it has been very impressive Canucks fans I think are enamored most of all with with Quinn Hughes and as you know Brian having been in this market for a long time when the team is rolling it's a fun place to be Brian Burke you hear him weekly here on Sportsnet 650 on the starting lineup you obviously see him on the broadcast as well Uh, thanks a lot for doing this Brian and and we look forward to seeing you back on our TVs uh, pretty soon
4: yeah thank you and good luck to the Canucks
0: that's Brian Burke, uh, former GM in this city and now a voice on Sportsnet. And as I mentioned, you can hear him weekly on the starting lineup with James Sabalski and Perry Salkowski right here on Sportsnet 650. A couple interesting things from Burkey, as usual, when you, when you get a chance to chat with the man. The Quinn Hughes stuff is huge, and Brian has the reputation – uh, for favoring physical play, uh, but that's it, it's it's funny because he has that reputation. He's also the guy who pulled some draft day wizardry to draft the Sedin's, and he's also the the guy who uh, won a Stanley Cup with a player like Timu Solani. He's not you know not a power forward, a, a goal scorer, a very smart player, but I think uh, also traded for Phil Kessel while well, the the gm of toronto and so while there there seems to be this thought that he likes physicality and some of it is is the quotes and i think i think brian plays into that a little bit i believe truculence is in his twitter bio that's that's just part of the equation and clearly listening to him talk about quinn hughes someone uh, as a person that he has a relationship going back with uh as he just said, seven years old when he was a kid because of, of Quinn's dad and the work that he does in player development with the Toronto Maple Leafs. It is true that those skills tend to shine at a really young age, and Canucks fans Canucks fans are seeing the best of it, and I do agree with Brian. That it's probably the tip of the iceberg.
2: Well, it was, as Brian was talking about the evasiveness, it actually took me back to the 2007 draft, which is actually when I was just starting out in the media here in Vancouver. And if you go back, that was the year Chicago had the number one pick. But what really drew it to this market was Kyle Turris was in the mix. Who was a New Westminster product? He was playing with the the Burnaby Express. Yep. And I remember going out and doing a story with Kyle and his family when he was playing in Burnaby. And just it happened that the night we were there to watch the Express play, Dale Talon was in from Chicago scouting. And. One of the questions at that point with Patrick Kane, who was also in the mix and was playing and putting up big numbers with London of the OHL, was his size and whether he could do what he was doing in junior at the next level. And you look back now, and when I think of Patrick Kane, as much as I think of the skill, I can't think of a time where Patrick Kane has been hit. He is incredibly evasive. And that was the first thing that came to mind when Brian was talking about Quinn there is that Quinn seems to have that same innate ability to sense the pressure, sense when he's in a troubled zone, and he has an unbelievable unbelievable ability to turn back or right. just shift the focus and just sort of avoid hits.
0: And even when he's defending... It seems like he slows down play. Like he, It seems totally. like he, someone is coming at him at full tilt, and he somehow, by the way that he stops, the way that he turns, the way that he pivots it It feels like he's playing in a on a different dimension it's it's crazy
2: yes and and it's it's almost as if he can sense what's about to happen two or three steps ahead, and he's able to just oh just i'm gonna take a left here, i'm gonna loop back and he uses the same thing defensively you know he's got a he's got a big right winger coming down on him then and, and the guy's probably got thirty or forty pounds on him. He doesn't hit him, but with his use of his stick work and also just taking an angle, he's able to almost rub the guy out of, along the boards take the puck and just turn back. So, um, but taking it back to, you know, to Patrick Kane, you look back now, it was the Blackhawks inevitably took Patrick Kane at number one. And I don't think there's any doubt. He is, he's the best player in that draft and is now arguably maybe the best U.S. born player. And maybe at some point Quinn gets into that conversation, but that's sure. a long way down the road.
0: Patrick Kane's laid down a pretty good track.
2: Yes. And then, you know, JVR went second uh, with Philadelphia and Turris ended up, you know, going third. Yep. And Turris has had a very good career. We're not sure what's happening. You know, there's questions about, you know, a possible buyout in Nashville. But in the end, the size did not prove to be a problem for Patrick Kane at the next level. It is for some people. But, you know, as Brian was mentioning, the evasiveness, that was the first thing that I thought of. And, and when you look at Patrick Kane, he has had a stellar career in the NHL, and he has done it all
0: below the height of six feet. It is, yeah. It's it's impressive. The Canucks have never had a defenseman This good. They've certainly not had a defenseman like this. It's the the new era of play on the back end, and it's a big part. Uh, for why the Canucks were able to knock off St. Louis and move on to this series with Vegas. Uh, We'll continue to break that down. We've got a a text in from Bobby from the Docks. He wants to know the status for Toffoli and Myers. Uh, We will do our best to update that next and and continue to set the scene as we move away uh, from this series, uh, Canucks and Blues, and look towards Vancouver and Vegas. And we'll do all of that next You're on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair, the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. You're listening to Sportsnet today on the official home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. On air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair rolls on. Sportsnet today, Sportsnet 650. Canucks win last night. They head off to play the Vegas Golden Knights uh, in round two coverage. I think all day tomorrow, uh, as, as has been the case throughout uh, the postseason for these teams. On, right here, Sportsnet 650. All day, all Canucks heading into the first Second round matchup for this team since 2011. Canucks fans are excited. That reaction was pretty obvious if you were paying attention to social media, even if you're watching uh, Sportsnet Central last night. Uh, shots out of Surrey, Scott Road. People, people are fired up. Uh, if if the heart of Canucks fandom is is in Scott Road and Surrey, I think that's been uh, that's been pretty obvious. Uh, there is also a little bit of news uh, on the broadcast front today. Mike Milbury, per Bruce Arthur of the Toronto Star, has been sent home from the Toronto bubble. Uh, he had been part of NBC's broadcast uh, comments that he had made uh, that were that were sexist. I was going to say deemed sexist, but uh, that would be putting a qualifier in front of it. They were they were they were sexist comments. He uh, basically, uh, to paraphrase, uh, put women in a situation where they were just an object of distraction slash affection for hockey players and demeaned demean their 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 stat- status, their stance, uh, their standing in hockey, uh and I mean in in general anyway. So that decision has been made uh yesterday on the station on a Canuck Central with Scott Rintoul and Bic Nazar, Emily Kaplan from ESPN.com. Uh, she's a, a regular on the station. you hear her and uh, her hockey uh, reporting as well, but uh, is you qualified uh, to talk from a personal perspective in a way that Alex and I and Josh are not uh, about what those comments hit with her and, and what it's like to be a, a woman operating in that kind of world and in, in the hockey world. So let, let's hear from her. Yeah,
5: well, I do appreciate that, and um, I appreciate you asking me. To be honest, it's highly disappointing. It, it, It undermines anything that any woman who is in this industry does. You know, The Athletic came out with their 40 people in hockey under the age of 40, and I was just impressed by how many women were on that list, whether it was from scouting ranks, analytics. Um, now we have an agent who's going to represent the likely number one pick on the Lee Gay. And when I look at Meg Milbury, this is a pattern of behavior. This is not the first time he's made sexist comments. It was so cavalier and natural the way he said it. And he's in such a position of privilege and power. There's so few people who do what he does. And I just think it's a shame that we're giving someone like that a platform when they continue to say these things and alienate large swaths of people who can be hockey fans and can enjoy this great sport. Um, And, you know, I hope that NBC takes that into consideration.
0: Very well said. And it flies in the face of what we've been told for the last little while. Hockey is for everyone is supposed to be, does it not?
5: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you're a woman and, you know, I even think about that, And you know, he said, well, there's no distractions to women in the bubble. And I think he's talking about wives and spouses, but also at press conferences. And I think, okay, I'm a woman that shows up for the press conference. Does he consider me a distraction if I'm in the locker room? Like, that's BS. That's my job. Um, So, yeah, you know, that makes me feel like hockey is not for me or I'm not welcome. And, you know, we have these conversations a lot about race. We do have it about gender. We have it about sexuality. And I think the important thing is that we keep having these conversations and we keep – the league needs to keep their eye on the prize and keep their eye on the ball and keep doing with initiatives. Even if we don't have change right away, uh, that doesn't mean we can stop.
0: Emily Kaplan from ESPN.com yesterday on Canucks Central with Scott Rintel, who you heard there in the clip, and as well as his co-host Bick Nazar. Since then, and and she said she hoped that NBC would take action. They have, and that that's that's a pretty that's a pretty important. Well, I I want to say that it's it's big and and it's it's it should be obvious. Right, like I, I think, and I'm going to speak for myself here. I need to stop saying that this is a big thing, and it, like it, it's sh- it should just be, it should just be obvious. There should not be much debate about that. There, there needs to be an understanding, a conversation that goes maybe a little bit beyond. Uh, well, this is a, this is a big thing, and look, hockey's doing the right thing. No, it's an obvious thing, and hockey and the people at NBC. Didn't have much of a choice because, as I said off the top, it is demeaning to women. It puts them in a box that they do not inhabit and that they, they do not just exist as a distraction to hockey players. It's all, I mean, it's also, frankly, quite insulting um, that it is, it, it, it's the permeating old boys club nature of hockey.
2: First and foremost, e- Emily is a terrific writer. If you don't follow her on ESPN or on Twitter, uh, you should. She's incredibly creative. She's found, you know, throughout the year, and, and in the hockey season can be long. She's found a really creative way to write some stories and find some really interesting story angles. Second of all, she she bring she touched on a really good point. Whether it's gender, whether it's race, whether it's sexual orientation, the NHL has at least marketed the, you know, anyone can play, this game's for everyone, and yesterday we heard a lot of talk. There were, you know, NBC re- released a press release, the NHL, I think to put a little bit of pressure on NBC released a press release, but actions speak louder than words, and what happened today with Mike was, I think, needed to show that what everyone is talking about is actually being, that, that level is of accountability is being held. Um, and I can't, I don't know, Mike Milbury, I can't speak for him, but you know, when you venture down that path and you're in a position like that, there are consequences for your actions. And I think this is more than appropriate. And I think in this day and age, uh, I'm glad to see that the NBC and whether the NHL was involved made that decision because you need to communicate to your fan base and that's to everybody regardless of gender sexual orientation color of your skin that this game is for everyone and you know you need to take action and and it sends a strong message
0: well said uh this is sportsnet 650 we are on air israel fair alex blair josh elliot wolf along for the ride with us as well we do have a couple of texts uh on the canucks uh one from bobby from the docks another from sean from north Van. they want to know the same thing alex What's the status of Tyler Toffoli and Tyler Myers? The Canucks are now moving ahead uh, on on the playoff front after a big win against the Blues. It's funny now because they, they lost Myers at the end of Game 2 uh, a week ago Friday. They did not play well defensively in Games 3 and 4. They were dominated uh, mostly by the Ryan O'Reilly line and then occasional shifts from some of the St. Louis depth lines. Most specifically, the Alex Edler and Troy Stetcher pairings got targeted. Quinn Hughes couldn't do it all alone. There was the feeling that without Tyler Myers, the Canucks were in tough. He really does stand as that swing guy for this blue line. He can fill a couple of roles. He kills penalties. He's an option on a second power play unit. And at five on five, you can put him with Edler. You can put you can put him with Hughes. He's going to soak up some minutes. The last two games, they've been much better. I do think that the prognosis for Myers is that he might be getting closer to a return. Same thing with Toffoli. I don't know that for sure. I I don't have uh, any up-to-date reporting on that. But it does speak to the fact that the Canucks have been able to battle back without their big free agent offseason signing from last year in the lineup for the last four games and the last two wins, and without Tyler Toffoli in the lineup for this entire series, their big trade deadline acquisition. If they are to come back, where's where's the fit based on what we've seen from the Canucks in, in these two series, and I think most specifically uh, coming off the series with St. Louis?
2: My gut feel is that Tyler Myers is maybe a more important piece to return. But having said that, I've been really impressed with Oscar Fantenberg and Jordy Benn. Like I thought they've actually played fairly well. They played pretty big minutes yesterday. Um, but the forward group seems to have really found a good balance. And Travis has done a really good job balancing that. The only thing, and I know this was pointed out on Twitter last night was the Canucks released a video last night after uh, after the victory. And it's basically a video kind of behind the scenes as the boys are coming off the ice. And then the Black Aces and some of the injured players are there to greet them. They had released a video, I think, after Game 5 of the same thing. And Tyler Myers, in the video after Game 5, has his left arm in his pocket, and he's reaching across his body to kind of give fist bumps with his other hand. Well, the video they released last night... He did not, he no longer had the left hand in the pocket and he was giving fist bumps with the left hand. And at this point, a lot of the speculation is that it was his left shoulder that went into the boards. So just out of that, you would think that he is progressing and, you know, hopefully he would be able to return at some point in the series, whether or not it's game one tomorrow. Um, Tafoli's, it's funny, you kind of forget about Toffoli, because he's been out now for quite a while and the forward group, for the most part, has felt like they've had really good balance. Um, you know, Stetcher definitely had a, a really tough go in game three and four as he sort of tried to fill the minutes as, as Myers went out. But I, I thought he settled in fairly well. But going up against Vegas, I think just the pure size of Tyler Myers will be helpful when you look at their forward group and how deep, especially the first three lines are with the with the Golden Knights.
1: Yeah, and I do think when Myers went down, you kind of got a sense that Stetcher was very overwhelmed with how much ice time he was getting, uh, especially in, I think it was game three, where Adler yeah. and Stetcher just had a rough game. It's probably It might be the worst game he's played with the Canucks. Yeah, definitely. And he, I think he did get used to it as the series went on. Uh, but yeah, Myers is definitely a little more important than Toffoli. I do think Myers slots in for Ben if there was to be a if he was to be healthy for game 1 same with uh with toffoli i think he would come in for someone like adam godet i would have said vertanen like 2 games ago uh but godet's kind of going up and down the lineup he played 10 minutes last game and it's just uh De Foley is going to bring more offense and play a more a little more versatile than adam godet would
0: yeah and and i think the the, the godet decision was made with the power play in mind he, if you look at any of the numbers, the second power play unit without Adam Gaudet was average to bad this year. With Adam Gaudet, that second unit was was really effective. In games three and four, power play went away. I believe they were uh, o for ten in those two games. Their two losses, o for ten, and the thought was, okay, well, while Zach McEwen brings a certain element five on five and some of that physicality, we need to go deeper into our strengths and have that, that uh, power play element with Godet back in. Uh, but they actually had contributions from other people in the bottom six, especially last game, but Tyler Mott's uh, game five as well.
2: Yeah, the numbers last night, I mean, there were questions about the bottom six halfway through the sp- series, especially after games three and four. And last night, you know, you look at the bottom six, they put up eight points and drove the bus. I mean, it was a really balanced effort for the Canucks throughout this entire series. We talked about Bo Horvat through JT Miller JT Miller and the evolution. I mean, Jacob Markstrom just throughout was really solid. But last night between Beagle, Sutter, Roussel, Tyler Mott, Adam Gaudet, I mean, they really, you know, you look at the Canucks now and you're thinking they're a deeper team. This was not a team that you perceived to have a lot of depth. And uh, it's really nice to see that coming to the forefront. They're going to be extremely challenged, I think, in this next round. Uh, It was funny, we were talking to Brian, and and then we chatted a little bit about the 2007 draft. It made me think a little bit of the 07 Anaheim Ducks that he was talking about. And that was the group that returned after losing the Western Conference Finals in 06 to Chris Pronger and the Oilers. They then make the trade in the offseason to bring Chris Pronger in. And that was, you know, the Canucks got through, I believe it was St. Louis in the first round, but got... Or was it Dallas, I think, in that first round? But they ended up facing Brian Burke. And this is the... Yeah, Dallas. Yeah. This was the Brian Burke... uh, Or no, not Brian Burke. The Roberto Luongo bathroom incident in overtime of Game 5. Yeah. And sort of the Scott Niedermeyer goal. But that was... You had a young Ryan Getzlaff, a young Corey Perry, and a young Dustin Penner on their third line. And that third line was such a difference in that series. And we didn't really know at that point what Corey Perry and Ryan Getzlaff and Dustin Penner were going to turn into. They were just high round picks that were sort of working their way into what was at that point a fairly deep lineup. But they made a huge they made a huge difference. And I look at, you know, this Vegas team, they are they're deep quite like that O seven Anaheim Ducks team that Brian Burke built.
1: Yeah, and as far as depth on the Canucks goes, like obviously it's not going to be anywhere close to Vegas as far as consistency goes and just overall talent. But if you look at last night's game, Tyler Mott, Jay Beagle, and Jake Vertanen played together for five minutes, which is actually more than Vertanen played with Pedersen and Miller. And that line when they were together, and I don't think it would be a line moving forward, but it was interesting. They had five scoring chances for and zero scoring chances against, and they also scored once. So and that was the second highest of scoring chances for out of any line for the Canucks last night. The first being Miller, Horvat, Besser. But that line also gave up six chances. So it'll be interesting to see if that's a combination moving forward. Because I do think Vertanen brings a little bit of offense to that line, though he doesn't necessarily drive play. Right. And when yeah. Vertanen isn't playing well, he needs someone else to drive that play. And We saw that uh, in in Game Five, given an opportunity
0: to play with Elias Patterson, JT Miller, they were the ones creating, but he was in the mix. Uh, his goal, he gave himself an opportunity to be open to to create that goal, and then the the Miller Miller goal, he was he was battling behind the net. Vertanen was was staying on a puck, trying to keep it alive, um, and was able to to set that up. And now the Canucks are heading into a series against Vegas. Uh, we're gonna keep talking about how Travis Green approaches this. You mentioned this earlier, Alex, off air, that you like what Peter DeBoer has done with this group and that they've had... The personnel has changed since they went to the Stanley Cup final, but they still play in that relentless way, but it it does seem a little bit tighter, and it does help when you are able to go out and get Mark Stone, who is the preeminent defensive winger, a guy who takes a lot of center responsibility as well. They do seem a little bit less run and gun than they were that first season. And that was even understanding the success that the Marcia. Riley or, or Smith and uh, Carlson line had, this is, this is a juggernaut. <laughs> and what Peter DeBoer has done coming in, even though the Gallant firing was surprising, seems to be working.
2: Well, it's a, it's a credit to George McPhee and how he built this team. And There could be, it would actually be a fascinating book to go back and and start with George and his team at how they put this process together. Not only did they do a great job of selecting the players that made up the 2018 roster of the Vegas Golden Knights, they were actually able to stockpile a ton of draft capital. And even though they didn't win the Stanley Cup in 2018 when they get to the final, since then, he's used a lot of that draft capital to supplement and fill in pieces whether it's Mark Stone whether it's Paul Stastny I mean you look down their roster it is a very deep roster Gerard Gallant was a perfect coach for them to w- the way he rallied that group of misfits players that were left unprotected really rallied that group and as surprising as it was he was let that he was let go after getting them to the cup final the year before Peter DeBoer I think brings a little bit more structure and George, I think has had a really good feel for that group and sense that they are, they're right there. They need somebody to just push them over the mountaintop. And as we've said, I, I think they're the best team in the West left. I think Colorado is likely the second best. I think Colorado in some ways is a little bit like the Canucks, but maybe a few years ahead with the way they've kind of built their team through the draft. The Canucks will have a really tough task here, but that's this is great experience for a young Canucks team and as Brian Burke mentioned and I believe I believe this going into the St. Louis series they they were playing with house money at that point. The fact that they had gotten through Minnesota I thought exceeded the expectation for this season and had they lost to St. Louis I don't think that that would have been on Jim Benning, I don't think that would have been on the players. I think they had reached their their potential for this year in growth. The fact they're even through that series we're talking about even more house money. And what I hope that that does for the group is allows them they they can go out there they can play stress free and they can just play hockey put their best game forward if it's not enough that's all right you know what that's Jim can assess that figure out what he needs to do to take this group forward but through this through this series Jim will get a sense of where this group is at against an elite NHL
0: team couple of texts in you can always text the station six fifty six fifty 650, 650 uh, Same topic, two different texters, Alistair in Clearwater and James, both wondering if Louis should be the scratch for Tyler Toffoli. Alistair writes, Godet brings energy, speed, and a degree of depth scoring that the Canucks will need against Vegas. Even if he hasn't found the score sheet so far, uh, Toffoli can make up for Erickson's defensive play if needed. That was something that Dan Murphy brought up with us as well, that uh, he's been really impressed with Tanner Pearson. He's been underrated he had a couple of snipes against minnesota and that's when you really notice him otherwise it is more about that that 200 foot game the the control the physicality that will definitely be needed against vegas (laughs) it's going to be a tough one we wouldn't be doing our jobs as a sports radio show sports radio podcast without getting our predictions out there so i'll put you on the spot alex canucks or vegas
2: Well, I should qualify this with saying I thought St. Louis was going to win in six. And even going into last night, I thought St. Louis was going to win last night. I just thought the Canucks' lack of experience and I think they had 10 players that had not played a playoff game prior to this year. I thought the the lack of experience in closing out a playoff series was going to cost them last night. So I I have been wrong. I think this is Vegas in five or six. I just think they're too deep. And... you know, not knowing where we're at with Tyler Myers, I think it's going to be a lot to ask that that bottom half group, which is now the bottom three defensemen, to go through Vegas. But the one thing I will say, and we were just chatting about it, between Toffoli, Zach McEwen, and, and Erickson, I think Travis Green can get a sense of the matchups in the first game and get a sense of how the team's playing. Those are three very different players, and I think he has the ability to change his lineup a little bit Uh, depending on, you know, Vegas is a fairly big team as well. Does he need Zach McEwen in there? Uh, You would have thought he would have liked Zach a lot more against a fairly big St. Louis team. But, you know, maybe he likes Louis' subtle game. Uh, But if he thinks that we need, you know, they need more offense, then he's got Tyler Tofoli there if Tyler Tofoli is healthy.
0: There's going to be plenty more Canucks coverage coming up after us. Joey Kenworth's got Canucks connected. Tomorrow.
2: He's got, and he's got Trevor Linden this week.
0: Trevor Linden. Oh Coming that's up next. that's a get. And tomorrow, Sunday, all day coverage uh on the home of the Canucks. Leading up to tomorrow night's game, Canucks and Vegas game one, round two at seven thirty is the puck drop. But as I said, coverage throughout the day. Shows, pre-game shows, pre-pre-game shows, and as you also know, the unlimited post-game show that can go deep into the night. Earlier in the show, we had Brian Burke on. He will be part of the Sportsnet broadcast of the first game of the other second-round series in the Western Conference, Dallas and Colorado. That game starts at 5 o'clock Pacific time on Sportsnet. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be a fun one. It's going to be a fun one, man. Uh, it's (laughs) It's been really cool to see... Uh, the city, and the Canucks fan base get behind this team. All right. On air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair, our producer, Josh Elliott-Wolf, will be back next week. This is the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.